In this episode of Fresh Bites on the Bitey End of the Dog, I have the pleasure of chatting with Cecilia Erebor of Player 2 Dog Training. And I truly want to thank Cecilia for this special episode as she discusses her own experience with anxiety and panic attacks and how that has helped her understand what many of the dogs may suffer from in our own work with aggression cases. This understanding of the underlying motivations and emotions of animals, it's such a crucial aspect of successful strategies in our cases. And I think you'll gain some nice takeaways from this episode. If you are enjoying the Bitey End of the Dog, you can support the podcast by going to aggressivedog.com, where there are a variety of educational opportunities to learn more about helping dogs with aggression issues, including the upcoming Aggression and Dogs Conference happening from September 30th through October 2nd, 2022 in Providence, Rhode Island, with both in-person and online options. You can learn more about the Aggression and Dogs Master Course, which is the most comprehensive course available anywhere in the world for learning how to work with and help dogs with aggression issues. Special thanks to John LaSala for editing the podcast this season and bringing the production to a whole nother level. Hey everyone, I'm really excited for this week's episode. We're going to be talking about anxiety and aggression with Cecilia Erebor. Cecilia has a master's degree in animal behavior management and six years of practical experience. Cecilia combines her love of teaching with a love of dogs to coach families and their dogs to overcome a wide variety of dog behavioral training problems. Cecilia believes in building positive relationships through proper communication and mutual understanding to raise well-behaved dogs that can exist successfully with their own families and society. On top of that, Cecilia also competes in gun dog sports with her golden retriever, Honey, and recently placed second in an NDE slash NH gun dog working test. Cecilia also hopes to compete in agility and maybe obedience. Welcome to the show, C. Thank you. Thank you. (laughs) I'm really excited for this topic because it's one that um, sometimes doesn't get talked about much. And I think we can sort of talk about the human element here as well, because, you know, millions of people suffer from anxiety issues. And it certainly is, is no stranger to all of the things that we've been experiencing in the last couple of years with the pandemic and so many other world events impacting the stress and anxiety in our daily lives. And dogs also can experience anxiety in profound ways, sometimes from something situational, like we might experience as a person in a certain context or generalized, where it's really impacting not only their quality of life, but their health as well. And before the show, we were talking about this topic of anxiety, and you had mentioned some of the experiences you've been through in your life. And so do you want to start on that? Maybe kind of take the audience through why you have an acute understanding and awareness of anxiety in dogs. Yeah, um, so I might as well go straight into it and say I am diagnosed with generalized anxiety disorder. I actually went through a really horrible period of my life, six months where I thought every day that I was going to die of a heart attack. Um, It was triggered, I think, by my previous dog passing and sort of I, I went in for multiple MRIs. My heart was scanned for 24 hours. You know, it was it was horrible. Um, so I think the understanding I have of anxiety and I guess how much it can impact your life and how it can impact your mindset. I know particularly when I get very anxious and worried about something, I can overreact and I can become myself quite reactive (laughs) I would probably say I'm a bit like a collie to be honest um if I'm not channeled then I I um 
if, if that sort of energy, that nervous energy is not channeled and it's not dissipated, then I can, it can spill out. And when it spills out, I, I can maybe act more aggressively than I normally would, or um, I might sort of go into a panic. I've had panic attacks, which I would never wish on anyone. They are horrible. Um, so yeah, I, I guess my understanding of it and my experience with it has allowed me to be a lot more compassionate towards dogs, particularly dogs that with the generalized anxiety, because, you know, you get a lot of people who say things like, but there's nothing for the dog to react to. Why are they reacting this way? But actually it's, it can be very much an accumulation of things. And if those aren't addressed, then it just, it just spreads out and just becomes a big mess. <laughs> yes. And I'm, I appreciate you sharing that background with the audience and myself. And I would love to get your take on sort of the way anxiety can kind of fuel that aggression a little bit more. I know you mentioned it, but and it'll help us understand, I think, why dogs are more likely to display aggression when they are experiencing anxiety. Yeah, so um, essentially I feel like a lot of the sort of the negative responses when I'm feeling anxious come from a lack of control. I feel like I don't really know what I'm doing in a situation. So say, for example, I don't know, I am going to a location. Um, I don't know what the parking situation is. I don't understand the roads. The roads are confusing. If I'm checking into a hotel, I don't know where the check-in desk is. I might not know where the, the hotel is itself. So all of these feelings of not feeling like I'm in control build and build and build so for example I might be you know driving down the road and I don't know someone cuts me up and if I knew where I was I might just be like whatever but (laughs) if I don't know where I am and I'm already stressed um profanity might come out of my mouth so it's very much that that lack of feeling like I'm in control and that confusion and that in itself makes me then frustrated it also kind of makes me question am I, am I capable? Am I smart enough to be doing stuff like this? You know, it it just creates a big sort of, um, I describe it like a scribble in my head and sort of unraveling that scribble is, can be quite difficult. Imagine you have a dog who, who already doesn't have a lot of control on their environment and and their general day to day, you know, that's probably amplified far worse on on top of the fact that obviously they are animals and they, they they go off instinct, don't they? Um, Whereas humans for the most part have a lot more, I suppose, control and a lot more, um, I guess, emotional, I'm saying the word control a lot, but sort of emotional handle on things, whereas a dog wouldn't, if that makes sense. It makes total sense. And a couple of points I want to kind of dig deeper into, which is, you know, you mentioned sort of dogs are in that context, or when we bring them into context, they may not be sure every certain situation. So something contextual versus and having control in that environment versus where humans can kind of not so much be living in the moment, but also be thinking about the future. You know, so we get into a situation like the parking situation. We're like, okay, so I might be uh, not finding a parking space. This is frustrating, but I'm also potentially going to miss my meeting, which also is going to mean I'm going to miss the go hanging out with friends later. Whereas dogs might say, oh, darn it, I don't know if this is safe or not, because there could be another dog coming around the corner, but they might not necessarily be thinking about, you know, missing dinner later on. Do Do you find that might actually amplify things for humans or maybe... I'll kind of let you expand your thoughts there because, you know. Oh, that's a good question. Do I think it would amplify it? I guess because we can look forward. I suppose we we are more aware of the knock-on effect of 
of when we're, we're not in control and when we're we're feeling anxious about something. But at the same time, I think being able to look forward and being also able to communicate maybe, oh, I'm running a bit late or I'm, or I'm this or I'm that. If we feel out of control, we can pick pieces and gain a bit of control in this lack of control, if that makes sense. Um, whereas with a dog, they're very much in the moment, in the now. So I think that would very much at least in, in sort of thinking about it now, I reckon I, I reckon that would amplify for a dog personally. Mm. Yes, yeah, it's interesting when you think about that. Is is it immediate? Is it something that the dog is thinking about mm. later on? Is it through the learning experiences of what that might the dog might be expecting? So uh, I wish we knew how far dogs <laughs> were thinking ahead in a way, right? <laughs> so. So, you know, I think it's important also to discuss that this is something that we have to normalize, not only for humans, but for dogs and the experiences that each person or animal is having in a certain context and understanding why they might be displaying certain aggressive behaviors or other behaviors. So why don't we jump into that, like the the behaviors you recognize or see, or maybe even the body language or the signals that you see when you when you have clients with dogs that are experiencing anxiety. Um, so a lot of the time when I'm working with dogs that have either generalized anxiety or anxiety in particular situations, maybe around dogs or around people, I tend to find that, particularly with the generalized anxiety, there's like a, a baseline level that they're working at and then what happens is say if a a stimuli or a stressor comes into the environment the dog just flips and it can look very very explosive um whereas actually you're dealing with a dog say for example I don't know your normal dog works on a a baseline of I don't know 20% anxiety right for example and you have a dog who has generalized anxiety and they're already working at a baseline of 60% So if you have a dog who's at that 20%, you know, if something stresses them out, maybe they might go to 40, you know, it's it's still an an amplification, but it's more manageable. Whereas sort of a dog that's already at 60 is likely to already get to a hundred percent very quickly because they're already working at, at sort of a baseline. Um, And I think I can relate to this because I probably work at a baseline of like 40% anyway. (laughs) Um, So I tend to find that if you have a dog who's, who does have anxiety, they're a lot more likely to be explosive because it's almost that I knew that was going to happen. I knew something bad was going to happen. And because unfortunately, then you have the cycle of because if there's something bad that then does happen, it reinforces that anxiety and it's just a a vicious cycle. They also don't have the same societal pressures to behave in a certain way, right? So, so when we might experience a moment that makes us anxious or, or experiencing stress in a certain situation, we have pressures also to not have those outbursts yeah. or the way a dog might experience. Yeah. Would you agree? Mm, I would say, I think, I think working with owners, I think they do have those, but through us. I think mm-hmm. dogs do have a pressure to behave a particular way. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's why, I mean, particularly in the US, because you have a lot of leash laws and stuff like that. I think a lot of people are judged based on how their dog behaves. So whilst the dog may not feel the societal pressures, the owner does. And because the owner does, that then feeds into the dog's behavior. And again, you just have another sort of vicious cycle. So I was working with an owner who she had a dog very anxious dog not as anxious now thankfully but she was quite anxious her name was Mia she was a black lab and the owner actually developed anxiety 
because of the dog's behavior. So the dog came to me because um, she had a situation where this dog ran into this this old guy and actually hurt his knee quite badly. Um, So obviously that gave her anxiety because she was very much in that, I can't have my dog behave in this way. I was put into a situation that I really disliked. So yes, I definitely think that the societal pressures can come about for dogs, but just through the owner. Mm, That's a very good point. Very good point. What about, just to dig a little further, what do you see for, let's talk about some of the body language you might see that we can help owners recognize uh, when their dog is in a state of anxiety, but it's not very clear. Because when we think about a dog, you know, having a hard time, sometimes the obvious signals are, you know, whining or, um, Mm -hmm. you know, some of those more overt behaviors, but we might see some of the subtle signs come up before any of these uh what we might define as outbursts or more explosive behavior so uh, you want to talk more about that yeah so um i think one that particularly gets missed by owners is very much turning of the body away and turning of the head away and sort of averting gaze um i think a lot of owners miss that in particular because normally at least in my experience you normally see that and sometimes again if you have a dog who's particularly anxious you'll see that they'll freeze and then they turn and snap So signs like that, Um, when dogs are playing, I think owners miss a lot of the signs. So ideally, you want to see dogs mirroring each other. Um, You want to see the dogs taking turns. I mean, I've I've had a lot of situations where owners are like, oh, they're chasing each other when actually one dog is just wanting to escape (laughs) and isn't able to escape. So their only choice is to kind of just run around like a loony. And then there's the the more obvious signs. So jumping up at the owner can be an anxiety sort of behaviour that is missed a lot because the owner thinks, oh, my dog loves me or, oh, my dog's really excited when actually the dog is trying to jump up at the owner as if to say, get me out of here. So that's one that's really, really missed. And I have sort of, I went to um, an event called Dog Fest Mm-hmm. And there was, I can't even begin to tell you the amount of times I was maybe stood in a queue and I had owners sort of talking amongst themselves. I was just eavesdropping as I do. And the the owners would say, oh, they're really, really excited while the dog's trying to clamber on their lap or, or maybe the dog's sort of doing 360s on the lead. And I just sort of would cringe in my head and just be like, actually, your dog's really anxious and really not coping with what's going on. Whereas owners read it as they're excited, but actually they're not. Stress panting as well. So panting out of context is another one that gets missed. So when a dog's obviously, when a dog's exercising, you would expect them to pant, but um, dogs will also pant in situations where they're over aroused, whether it be stressful or stress inducing or over excitement. You paint a, a lot of great pictures there because you're kind of visualizing the type of dog you're talking about and all the anxiety <laughs> they must be experiencing. So we're going to take a quick break and we'll be back to talk more about how we can help these dogs with anxiety issues. Hey friends, it's me again, and I hope you are enjoying this episode. You may have figured out that something I deeply care about is helping dogs with aggression issues live less stressful, less confined, more enriched, and overall happy lives with their guardians. Aggression is so often misunderstood, and we can change that through continued education like we receive from so many of the wonderful guests on this podcast. In addition to the podcast, I have two other opportunities for anyone looking to learn more about helping dogs with aggression issues, which include the Aggression in Dogs Master Course and the Aggression in Dogs Conference. 
If you want to learn more about the most comprehensive course on aggression taught anywhere in the world, head on over to aggressivedog.com and click on the Dog Pros tab and then the Master Course. The course gives you access to 23 modules on everything from assessment to safety to medical issues to the behavior change plans we often use in a number of different cases, including lessons taught by Dr. Chris Pockle, Kim Brophy, and Jessica Dolce. You also receive access to a private Facebook group with over a thousand of your fellow colleagues and dog pros all working with aggression cases. After you finish the course, you also gain access to private live group mentor sessions with me where we practice working through a variety of cases together. And if you need CEUs, we've got you covered. We are approved for just about every major training and behavior credential out there. This is truly the flagship course offered on aggression in dogs and is perfect for pet pros that want to set themselves apart and take their knowledge and expertise to the next level or even for pet owners who are seeking information to help their own dog. And don't forget to join me for the third annual Aggression in Dogs conference, either in person or online from Providence, Rhode Island on September 30th through October 2nd, 2022. This year's lineup includes many of the amazing guests you might have heard on the podcast, including Suzanne Clothier, Jen Triok, Simone Mueller, Dr. Amber Batson, Kim Brophy, Karish Mawar, Laura Monaco Torelli, Dr. Simone Gabois, and many more. Head on over to aggressivedog.com and click on the conference tab to learn more about the exciting agenda on everything from advanced concepts and leash reactivity to using positive reinforcement to work with predatory behavior. And if you like to show off your support of the podcast, this year we teamed up again with the folks over at Wolf Culture for some catchy limited run conference merchandise. Wolf Culture is known for their witty, nerdy, and no-nonsense apparel that was created in 2019 to spread more awareness towards the use of humane training methods. Their apparel is here to help you start conversations, advocate for your animals, and rep force-free training in a different way. So don't forget to get your conference gear. It leaves the site after 12-31-2022. If you want 10% off your order, use the code BITEY10 at checkout. That's B-I-T-E-Y-1-0. All right, welcome back. I'm here with C, and we've been talking about anxiety in dogs and its relation to aggression. And one of the things I wanted to get into next is how can we help these dogs? And I think it, it often starts with what we were talking about before is recognizing the signs. But then what do we do once we see our dogs in that state of anxiety? You want to expand further on that? Uh, yeah, so, you know, there's the typical stuff of, you know, using um, counter conditioning, desensitization. Um, but I think a lot of what dog trainers miss as well is actually taking the owner through their own anxiety because unless you address the owner's anxiety you're not going to address the dogs because the owner will not then put themselves in situations they find uncomfortable which means the dogs will never be put in situations that they find uncomfortable and the owner and the dog never realize that actually oh we can handle this now um so going back to um mia which I mentioned earlier, the dog that ran into a guy and hurt his leg. Um, I remember a specific situation. We took her and her owner to this park, quite heavily populated by people. It's a park that I take clients to a lot when they're sort of working their way through their dog training journey. And we ended up at this bottleneck, um, which is where a lot of people tend to congregate. So there's like a, a, a bit of water. There's normally children there. In this particular situation on this day, there was old people there as well. So the owner was 
really, really, really anxious. So I basically took her through the middle of this bottleneck and the dog was fine because a lot of the time the dog, if you're doing the work that you need to do, the dog will be fine. It's the owner that really, I think, is the owner that needs to address their anxiety. So I took them through this bottleneck and we got past it. The dog was fine, as I suspected. And I literally got the owner and the dog to turn around and do it again. And then we did it again. And then we did it again. Um, I must have taken the, the owner through this same bottleneck about six times. And then I was like, OK, we're done now. And the owner was just beaming. She was just like, oh, my goodness, I'm I, I'm amazed. Mia did nothing. She was she was perfectly fine. I said, yeah, a lot of the time, if you're doing the work with the dog, they will, they will just, dogs are easier. <laughs> dogs are easier than people. And she was just beaming. And there's been a lot of situations where I've taken owners into situations that they're not comfortable with. And the dog has been fine because we've done a lot of the prelim work, a lot of the desensitization, counter conditioning, um, engagement. And, you know, the owners are, are left, you know, they need to chalk up the positive experiences as well um, to counteract the negative ones that they've had. Yeah, so I'm so glad you mentioned that side of the <laughs> equation, which is the humans and helping them through it, because oftentimes it is very stressful or embarrassing, and it drives that anxiety into the whole uh, situation, because we're worried, or the, the owner's worried about what's going to happen, and it's completely understandable. And one of the best things I've found, as you were mentioning, is to actually show the owner that it can work and you kind of, mm -hmm. you're there helping them uh, navigate that particularly difficult situation. And if they can see it happening, it helps them believe that they can do it themselves. And there's lots of different tips and tricks we can probably talk about even further in that regard. But I also kind of wanted to get your thoughts on, uh, now that we're on the topic of anxiety with the owners, is virtual or remote consults. So we've seen, a, obviously, an explosion of going online yeah. and virtually for many of our cases, and there's lots of benefits to that. We've seen many benefits in terms of just being able to do more consults and not upset the dog during the first visit or ever because <laughs> we're not in the home. But you know, this brings up an important point is that with the cases we were, you were just describing with Mia is we might not be able to be there to actually do some of that training or, or you know, kind of hand-holding, so to speak, through that actual moment, it might be all virtual. So do you have any tips or tricks or strategies on that that you've had to, to use? Oh, good question. Um, I think virtual definitely has its place, especially for like assessments and stuff like that, when you don't really need to meet the dog. But at the same time, I, f I feel like a lot is missed so I very much, I like working with the owner because it's the little nuances sometimes in their behavior that can actually trigger the dog. Mm -hmm. So for example, uh, not, not necessarily related to anxiety, but I'm working with a, a gun dog client at the moment and, you know, her just brushing her hand by her pocket meant that the dogs started spitting the dummy. And it's like little nuances like that. And I feel that can be missed virtually. However, where I think virtual consults can be beneficial is obviously with dogs that have people aggression, where you can at least make sure there's some prelim work done first before you get to meet the dog. I also find that kind of on the topic, but actually taking the dog out of their home environment can actually help some dogs in some cases, particularly if you're dealing with territorial aggression. So I think very much it's always on a case by case. But for me, I much prefer the one to one because I think a lot can be missed virtually. And those little nuances in body language of in the dog 
and the owner can make actually a big difference. And that's one thing that I've definitely found through my own work, at least. Mm, you bring up a lot of good points there. So jumping back to the the helping the the owners with the anxiety issues. So let's say we are going in person with the client and some of the techniques we might use. So one I, I might often use is first, I, I will, if I can work with the dog, if the dog allows me to, yeah. I will yeah. <laughs> uh, I'll work with them to, you know, sort of put those foundational skills on. And so the client can also see what's happening in, in real time, but also know that their dog can be successful in some environments. And then I will if the client is especially concerned about what can happen when they're handling the leash, I might use what's called the T-posts where I'm uh, handling one leash attached to the dog and the owner's handling the other leash. And really yep. it's, you're doing all the, the quote unquote driving <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. and, they, and the, the owner's sort of in the passenger seat, but then they take over on the steering wheel, so to speak. And then, but you still have the backup safety leash in case. So it just helps them feel more comfortable. And then you eventually of course transition to where they are handling, doing all the leash handling. So mm-hmm. the, do you have any other similar strategies or things, whether it comes to training or how you coach them or equipment? I never knew there was a term for that, but I literally did that with Benona the other day where I was sort of the anchor in the lead. Okay. Um, yeah. Um, yeah. So I never knew there was a, a t- term for it. I don't um, think that's an official term. I think it's, oh. uh, yeah, I think I first heard it from Trish McMillan, uh, my okay, okay. defensive handling sidekick. But um, yeah, it's probably from Trish, if I had to guess. Or maybe she learned it from somewhere else. Yeah. Yeah. So um, sorry, just to clarify, what's the question? So do you have any other like strategies or, you know, something similar to that? So it doesn't necessarily have to be a technique, but helping do- owners that have those anxiety issues when they're out working with their dog because of the dog's mm. potential behavior. A long line. Always, always, always a long line. I find long lines can be a very, very good intermediate step between full freedom and still feeling like you're in control. It's also a good intermediate step for the training in general. But one thing I like to do with long lines in in particular is drop them because then at least there's still 10 meters, 15 meters there to work with for you to grab if if the dog, you know, decides to to react. But again, it's an intermediate step. So the owner can sort of start with holding it. And then once this sort of the session sort of carries on, the dog's behaving well, I always say to the owners, drop the lead. And they're always like, ah, and I'm like, just trust me, drop the lead. Um, And there's been times where I've done this, the owner's dropped the lead, the session's gone fine. And again, the owner's beaming, absolutely beaming. And then obviously you progress to, to working towards off lead. So we talked a lot about helping the owners with their anxiety issues, but what about the dogs? And when the owners start to recognize those subtle signs of anxiety you're talking about, so turning the head away, maybe jumping up or exhibiting behaviors that are uncharacteristic for that particular context. What do you coach the owners to do to help their dogs when they see those signs of anxiety? Okay, so I think it depends on what's going on in the environment. So for example, a lot of the time I tell owners to scan the environment. So say for example, I'm working with a dog who is dog reactive and shows anxiety around dogs. If there is a dog in the environment that seems engaged with its owner or is on a lead or is on a long line, I normally say, okay, this is probably a situation we can push forward because we know the other dog's not going to surprise us. Um, We know the other dog's not going to come and make it harder for us. So as long as the, the dog that I'm working with is still engaging, then we keep moving forward. However, (laughs) If there is a dog that is clearly not in very good control, I will normally avoid situations like that too early on in the process because 
you can only control what you and your dog does. You can't control other people, sadly. And I I say this to owners all the time, particularly owners who might have breeds that have a stigma attached to them. Owners with dogs like that tend to, you have to be a lot more careful because other people will always, you know, brush you with you're the problem. So I'm very careful with owners like that. But in particular, I'd like to look at the the situation as a whole. Okay, is this a dog we can work around safely? You know, sometimes I might call ahead to the other owner. Do you mind if we use you for a bit of training? But you have to look at it holistically because obviously if the dog's already showing signs of anxiety, it's not always good to just, oh, we're leaving. (laughs) Because obviously you don't actually address anything by just leaving every single time. But I think you have to take into account everything that's going on. I would never, ever want to put an anxious owner and an anxious dog into a situation where there's not control, whether that's control with with them or whether that's control with the, uh, with any sort of uh, stimuli in the environment, such as a dog that is running around and the dog is shouting, no, come here, no, come here. And, and, you know, that's not, that's probably not a situation I'd want to put sort of uh, owners who are early on in the training journey in, if that makes sense. Yeah, it makes absolute sense. And you were talking about consistency as well and routines, which I think is sort of the antithesis for uh, anxiety, right? So if we can have a predictable outcome and we know what's going to happen in a certain context, it significantly reduces our anxiety. And so we can put that same pattern in place for dogs. We go to a park, we mm-hmm. get out of the car the same way, we park in the same spot, we do pattern games or something that is very predictable and routine for that dog so they're feeling safe. And the owner additionally can feel safe. Do you, on the, on the sort of the other side of the coin is what do you do for if we teach the client a particular routine or context uh, in a context when they see their dog displaying anxious behavior and we get the dog out of there or we do something, we ask the owner, you know, do a treat scatter or do something this way. Do you find a problem with it becoming sort of poisoned in a sense, meaning the dog sees something that makes them anxious and then the owner engages in this next routine. So then it becomes more of a pattern of, okay, I'm going to go there, feel safe for a moment, then I'm going to experience anxiety and then my owner is going to do this <laughs> A, B or C thing. So it's sort of, a, sort yeah. of a geekier question, but a deeper one, but I think it's important. And I think you would acutely understand this aspect because it's it really is dependent on the environment. But what do you do if you start to see that pattern? So if there's been poisoning of, of techniques. Yes, or so I should probably explain a little bit or give an example maybe, you know, so like the dog sees something and starts to jump up on the owner and then the, the owner is taught some handling techniques. Okay, you can mm. ask the dog for a sit or a cue, touch, or and then treat scatter on the ground. And then the yeah. owner remembers that as their go-to. And the next thing you know, other scary things in the environment <laughs> predicts or sort of they trigger or they cue for that behavior or should I should say stimulus for that particular behavior to jump up on the owner. The owner does that particular behavior on their own to scat- treat scatter. And next thing you know, you've got other dogs, you know, uh, kind of predicting this pattern. So it's the right order of events, but it's still a pattern that is putting the dog in a situation where they're going to experience anxiety. So yeah. does that, that kind of makes sense? Yes, no, it does make sense. So ba- basically what we're talking about is you've built a behavior chain where you didn't want a behavior chain. In a sense, yes, but I'm, I'm kind of digging deeper into the anxiety component that might be experienced in that particular context or that situation in that context. <laughs> okay, okay. So I'm going to try and answer how I think what I think you're asking me. Um, so if you have a situation where 
you have created pattern games for the owner and the owner has unintentionally poisoned it, then how I would normally troubleshoot that, well, the order that you do things is obviously very, very important because you want to make sure that obviously you are you are essentially uh, changing the emotional response of the dog. Um, it's a tough one because I've, 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 I've had situations where owners might unintentionally poison a cue because they've spotted the thing in the environment, the owner's then telling them to sit. Um, and then what's happened is then the sit becomes, oh, there's something in the environment to be scared of. But if you're doing things in the right order then that shouldn't, it shouldn't creep in. At least what I think you're asking me, I might be on the wrong page. Yeah, it's a deep question because I, I think the order of events really matters, but also maybe through your own experience, you know, so let's say you are trying to find that parking spot and uh, you find the same parking spot every day, but then still you see that the ticketing officer go by and it's just every day at the same time that ticketing officer goes by. Uh, but then I'm like, oh, don't worry, let's get out and just go. Is that going to be problematic because the dog is still experiencing an, a moment of anxiety in a particular moment at the same time, pretty much every time? Do you think that would create issues or lessen it in, in the long term because the dog's going to be like, oh, it's just a ticketing officer. I don't have to worry about the ticketing officer or, or you, I should say. <laughs> You're yeah, like, All right, yeah. just the ticket officer every day <laughs> and I'm parking in the same spot. So I don't have to worry about this. Or because the ticketing officer is bringing moments of anxiety, like, oh, I don't know if I should park in this spot anymore because I still see that's that darn ticketing officer every single day. Does that kind of make more sense? Yeah, that does that does make a bit more sense actually. Um it's tough because I for me at least the way I've battled my anxiety is very much you just have to do it. <laughs> you just have to put yourself in those situations and eventually what will happen is the other sort of nuances maybe in a situation will just start to die down because okay, I feel in control. I'm, I'm in this parking spot. Okay, I know this ticking to officer might come by, but I know I'm safe. I know I'm I'm parked. I'm okay. Um, so I I tend to find that at least trying to translate it to my own experiences is that as long as I feel in some level of control, then I feel like the other stuff doesn't become so big. If that makes sense, mm, makes a lot of sense. And so I'm gonna pick your brain a little further then in that let's say the argument is that dogs can't necessarily uh, make all of those decisions or we don't know when to push them through to that next step so you as driving the car can decide i'm going to park in this spot um, because uh, you know you're the one behind the driver's wheel and then versus a dog who's on a leash with you is technically you're still driving that car and you're you got to decide can should i park in this spot today or do i need to find another spot for this dog today and uh, can you kind of walk me through your decision making process there okay so one thing i always say to my owners is if because you have to take into account the owner is experiencing stuff day to day as well so Mm. i say to them look if you're in a situation and you feel like you don't have the capacity to put your training hat on, don't put yourself in that situation. Because obviously, you know, I work with owners, some some owners that I've worked with have unfortunately domestic abuse victims and, and stuff like that. And, you know, if they can't cope, there's no way they're going to make good decisions for their dog that day. So 
I always, I always, always, always advise my owners. I actually think it's very important that if you cannot put your training hat on, if you cannot handle a situation, say, for example, I don't know, they've turned up at a park and they've opened the door and their dog's instantly on high alert, you know, has reacted to maybe a dog that's that's come out the car. And if the owner feels that that sort of impending doom, I always say, go back, go back home. Just go back home because you're not going to make good decisions, which means your dog isn't going to make good decisions because essentially, yeah, you're right. They're still in the driver's seat. And obviously their body language, their reactions will also feed into their dog. And the dog also might be having, you know, maybe not the best day. The dog might have had a poorly tummy the day before or that same day. The dog might might have already been trigger stacked. Um, so if, if they can't handle it either, if, if say, for example, you're in your training journey and normally getting out of the car is, is fine, but this one day it's not fine and the dog's, you know, um, quite away in its training journey and, and they are unexpectedly reacting to stuff they've been fine with, chances are maybe there's something going on underneath the hood. So in situations like that, it's best not to push through it. If the dog is not 100%, if the owner is not 100%, in most cases, I would just say find somewhere else to walk, somewhere that's quieter or just go home, maybe do some enrichment, decompress for the both of you inside the house, go at it again the next day. See, your perspective is so needed in the dog training world because oftentimes we're focused on you know the dog and we don't consider the human's needs as well. So I really appreciate everything you just said there. So Given everything that we've been talking about and considering both the dog's point of view and the human's point of view, which I really loved that you shared that with us in this episode, are there any take-home messages for the pet owners out there that might be experiencing anxiety or their dogs that are experiencing anxiety? Um, I think the biggest take-home is I would say consider yourself in the equation as well as your dog. So assess how your dog's feeling. I mean, every owner knows their dog better than I do, better than than you probably would. You know, obviously they get the knowledge from us, but also really looking inward and actually acknowledging, can I handle this today? Because if you can't handle it, your dog is not going to be able to handle it. So I think taking a holistic approach and actually assessing your feelings and your dog's feelings so you both come at a situation in the best head will only serve to benefit you and the training process. What a wise way to wrap up the episode. See, where can people find you and what are you up to now in terms of projects? Um, so people can find me on Instagram at player two dog training. Um, I also have a YouTube channel with the same name player two dog training. Current projects are actually, um, honey and I are going to be heavily competing this year. So we've got, um, a two working tests, which is gun dog sports. So we've got two um, gun dog competitions in April. We're definitely going to be putting ourselves in for more. <laughs> um, but in terms of projects, that's sort of the, that and the YouTuber are the main things that are ongoing at the moment. Fantastic. And I'll be sure to link those in the show notes. See, thanks so much for joining me. It was really wonderful talking to you. Thank you for having me. And I hope to see you in the future. Yeah, thank you very much. I hope you enjoyed hearing from Cecilia as much as I did. And do want to thank her again for opening up about her personal experiences so we can all learn more about understanding the dogs in our care. If you like the show, please feel free to subscribe, share, and give a rating. And hop on over to aggressivedog.com for more information about helping dogs with aggression. 
From the Aggression in Dogs Master Course to webinars from world-renowned experts and even an annual conference, we have options for both pet pros and pet owners to learn more about aggression in dogs.